Hello, and welcome to the Adaptive Edge of Education. My name is Miranda Shorty, and I'm your host. Today with me, I have the fabulous Neil Kelly, who I have the privilege of knowing as a member of my doctoral cohort, but also as someone that I have uh, collaborated with on some recent publications. He's incredibly hardworking and motivated and positive. I'm super lucky to have him in my life. He's also a middle school science teacher. So shout out to all those folks just hanging in there in middle school. And uh, he's an openly gay male from a conservative Catholic background. And today he would like to talk about a topic that is uh, incredibly important and valuable to him. And so I will let you take it away, Neil, if you'll tell us a little bit about what topic you'd like to discuss and your experience with it. Thank you, Miranda. And thank you for having me. This is such a wonderful opportunity and I'm so excited to be here and to share uh, my thoughts around diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. Um, yeah, so DEI for me is really all about removing barriers that we see kind of crop up in, in multi multiple facets of everyday life and in society and in organizations. But obviously, this is probably, this is more geared towards school, towards public education. Um, and removing barriers can look like one of many different things. Um, it can look like barriers that have impeded um, a child's learning, whether that's some sort of uh, disability or neurodivergence or um, barriers just in terms of how someone identifies and how that means of identification has served or not served them uh, in accessing the education that they deserve. Um, DEI for me is really about embracing each individual as the human being that they are, whether they um, identify in terms of their ethnicity one way or their sexual orientation another way or um, their race. It's really about embracing the whole person and in taking that way of embracing a human being and uplifting and empowering them and giving them the same opportunities as anybody else to be able to attain the level of success and well-being that anyone is really entitled to. And in this case, accessing an education that will serve them for a lifetime. You know, I think about, I think about my students when I think about this topic and I think about the so many different walks of life that my students uh, bring with them when they come into my classroom. And I've taught in a few different states and I've taught in a few different contexts and I've had students that have had an array of um, exceptional gifts about them. I've had students with so many different talents and so many different gifts that they bring to the classroom. I've had students that come to me with an array of different identities and ways that they um, identify as themselves and their families and their their upbringing. And then I think about um, I think about some of the challenges that I've observed in my observations um, as a middle school science teacher, um, and even just in my personal interactions with them. You know, I really get to see them in a lot of different contexts, and I get to see them really shine. And I get to really, you know, unfortunately, I get I do see their struggles, and I see the things that have gotten in the way before, not just necessarily academic, but also. Um, barriers that have that are a bit more personal to them that uh, have prevented them from being their best selves, and some of those are um, some of those are a bit more structural, and some of them are are systemic. And I 
as time has gone on and I've become, I've gotten a little more well-versed being a teacher, I've been able to really see um, those things manifest in the, in the classroom, in the systems that we have in schools that, you know, maybe once served the population well years and years ago, but are no longer serving, right? These are things that we've just come to, to, to be more cognizant of as time has gone on. And it's, it's empowered me to really, really think about the practices, the policies, and, and the ways that we're really helping these kids with these barriers, overcoming these barriers. So diversity, equity, and inclusion for me is really just, it's really taking the time to understand diversity, understand what equity really means in a classroom setting or even at an organizational level, and then really thinking about the ways that we can change what we do and how we do it so that we're continuing to remove layers of these barriers over time. And it's not a process that takes that happens overnight. This is a process that takes a lot of time. Um, but I think those little steps add up to a lot. And the more that we reflect upon those and act with intentionality, the, the better off we are for kids and really for everybody. So I love your um, frame of of reference for DEI that mentions removing barriers. And it makes me think a lot of um, Young Zhao's book um, <clears throat> that we discussed in one of our, our prior classes in terms of like understanding the ways in which we create barriers um, within education without even really realizing how everything kind of be a barrier to the learning experience. Right. Uh, I think that that's a really great way of understanding it. I don't know if I would have included that in my definition, but I totally agree with it. So I, in fact, I think your definition of DEI is much more eloquent than what mine was going to be. So I appreciate that. I, I tend to, I tend to think of, and, and I wanted to mention this to you or get your thoughts on this. When I think of DEI-related issues, my mind initially goes to concepts within uh, the six protections of the Civil Rights Acts in terms of protecting people from discrimination and harassment based on race, ethnicity, national origin, uh, gender identity, sexual identity, religion, dis uh, disability. That's kind of where I go to. But logically my brain sees those sociological minority groups as so is so much more vast than just those six i think the those six being the the civil rights acts protections only is kind of a barrier by itself right and um when i do this work with my students when we kind of break down characters within novels, I usually ask them to look at the wheel of power and privilege. Right. And um, I ask them to identify where they see their character having a having positions of power or privilege, or having positions of um, being marginalized or even vulnerable. Yeah, and, and I think that's the first step in all of this is really just identifying where where is it happening, because we can be so well intentioned, and we can have things that, you know, we don't even realize that we're, we're doing that, that we're um, in, inadvertently or indirectly discriminating against somebody. Or, I mean, obviously it can be very overt sometimes as well. But I think the first step, as you said, is really just naming it, identifying it. And that's that can be hard work, I'm sure. So that's impressive. On that, kids. Um, 
on that wheel, there's 12 different classifications to consider. So there's citizenship, skin color, formal education, ability, sexuality, neurodiversity, mental health, body size, housing, wealth, language, and gender. Um, So they obviously take way more different identity markers into consideration when breaking down these positions of privilege and power versus positions of um, marginalization or vulnerability. And I've seen wheels that are even larger that have 20 or 30 different identity markers that can, um, that can classify people in this way. Some of the ones that I, I like that aren't even on this one, um, but I think could be our areas to talk about are age. And that's largely in part because I feel so, <laughs> so strongly about uh, lack of autonomy and agency and efficacy in, in children. Right. So um, I think, and, and also in, in um, people from mature portions of our community, I think there's a lack of agency and autonomy there too. Um, I think that it would be really nice if we would include uh, family dynamics somewhere on the wheel. I think there's area for DEI work within uh, people that come from single parent households, adoptive households, foster, oh, yeah. um, whatever the different family dynamic is. And so any of those things to me really um, could be considered too. And I know there's quite a few of them, but it's very difficult to think about all of the things without considering first, like, what are the areas I would be blind to? Because this isn't some, this isn't an area of marginalization or vulnerability that I fall under. Right. And that's where, you know, I would argue it takes a village. It takes, this is, this is not a one person kind of job. Like, there's going to be plenty of things that I'm blind, that I'm blind to. And I don't, I don't mean any ill by that. And I, I don't mean any harm by that, but having, mm-hmm. you know, this be a team effort and having perspectives from a lot of different people that um, it, it's, it's powerful. And I think, you know, through that, we really leverage a tool that um, enables us to add more to that wheel or, or to really um, just continue to refine how we're looking at it, or the factors that we keep in mind when we're um, when we're considering, you know, ways of discrimination or or ways that power and privilege are distributed. You know, we can we're all we're very kind of you know, when I think about this, we we pull from a lot of our past experiences and our identities when we're when we're really thinking about this. So having as much kind of perspective from different viewpoints or lenses is really impactful when it comes to this stuff. And I also like how you talked about in your definition of DEI uh, as an educational challenge, um, the idea that it takes time. And I think this is a real struggle in education because we feel like we don't have that time. By that, I mean, this is kind of at crisis levels in education, in terms of how frequently throughout our day, we're dealing with issues of diversity, equity, or inclusion amongst our students, amongst our staff, uh, amongst members of our community. And it feels like we need help now. Like we've kicked the can down the road so far that that intense amount of time that it takes to develop uh, effective um, 
solutions, system solutions to adaptive challenges, we, we just don't have it anymore. Is that fair to say? Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Could you clarify when you, when you say that it's a matter of time and that we've kicked the can? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think we've been talking about DEI for a long time and what I've noticed in some of the research that I did on this particular topic was how many people mentioned that if you're going to implement DEI related initiatives or strategies, protocol policies into your school, that you have to remove illusions about it. Right. And at first I wasn't really sure what that meant, but looking more into it, what they were saying was it's not enough to just have meetings about the fact that there is a problem, identify that there is a problem. We have to also develop ideas of how to address the problem with fidelity to actually fixing it. And I think that's where the biggest resistance is because I I think, and I know this is like, I'm bordering on controversial here, but that's okay. I don't care. I'll go there because whatever. That's my, (laughs) that's my style. Um, I think, I don't think I've witnessed resistance to actual genuine ideas for removing marginalization and vulnerability for different members, sociological minority members of school communities because the people that would be re- would have to do the work to remove those barriers don't actually want to be on the same playing field as everyone else. There's advantage to their privilege and they're not super comfortable giving it up. Right. For a host of reasons, you know, cuz this right. is this is like you said it's it can be very controversial work. I would mm-hmm. absolutely agree that more and I've seen it definitely in my context and in my teaching situation and in multiple situations um, where we talk a good talk and we you know can certainly you know we can certainly do a lot of talking but it's it's a matter of actually walking the walk and then actually executing or, or trying out different things that are going to or what we hope will affect a genuine difference and I think you know, people in these positions of power really kind of get, you know, they could, like you said, they could either be, you know, just simply, you know, saying it to say it and not actually have the intentionality of doing anything about it. Or um, it could be a matter of them losing their jobs because the people that they are working under, you know, don't share the same beliefs or they're just doing it to check a box. I think there's a lot of that that tends to happen. And it goes back to the idea of who's, what's this privilege? Where's this, uh, this, this power and this privilege, you know, kind of coming from? And it's, it can and, be a really difficult challenge to address. And is it being, and, and is someone else's power or privilege being threatened? Because that right. makes people feel uncomfortable. We know it does. We know it does because we see the signs at, during the holidays about, making sure that we keep Christ in Christmas or yep. making sure that people are, are quote, allowed to say Merry Christmas in school, end quote. 
yes, you're allowed to say Merry Christmas in school. You can say Happy Holidays. You can say whatever you want. No one gets in trouble for that, right? That's not a real thing. But the minute we suggest that we incorporate other people's celebrations, other people's cultures into being represented in public arenas where those other religious practices and cultures are existent, that creates a dynamic of threat against the majority population. And that's where this like perceived loss of culture that isn't actually happening comes from, right? right? Because it's not really, I'm afraid that you're going to make it impossible for me to practice my culture. It's, I think you're going to make it um, not as much of a dominant culture and I'm going to lose a position of privilege or power. Right. Right. And that's what I really worry about being at the heart of some of these issues related to DEI is how do we convince people who have been in positions of power or privilege for a very long time that they aren't losing anything by relinquishing that power and privilege to give opportunities to other people from different identification markers or statuses or cultural, um, you know, groups, the same level of position or, and, and, and influence. Yeah. Right? And I, it's something that jumps out to me in all of this too. When we talk about these people in positions of authority who has privilege or, or this sense of loss, you know, I think about the people that are in these, these leadership roles or people that have a lot of this power um, and I think about the different generations of people that are that are out there. And I think there's a generation of individuals who have this level of power, this level of of privilege um, that are in a generation where um, you know, they're they're kind of set in they're set in I don't uh, they're kind of just set in their ways. They're just they're set. They have this ideology or this 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 very firm belief or this this notion to hold on to what they believe um has and this perseverating rhetoric that comes out same rhetoric over and over again and it's not even really their own but it perseverates in their mind because they hear it so frequently that they internalize it it becomes what they think they believe right 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 and And i I do think that there's a shift in in terms of the generation of educators like ourselves and a lot of people that are kind of emerging or starting to um starting to take more roles in leadership and education, I think there's there's a shift. I think but it goes back to this idea that it's going to take time and it's going to take the, the I'm going to say the right people. That's not the mm-hmm. right expression, but uh, to assume or to begin to assume more of those roles to help kind of change this narrative. And I think that's going to, like you said, it's going to take time and it's going to happen uh, in pockets. And it's probably something that um, we'll see more of in certain, even certain regions of our country, less so than others. Um, you know, I, the, it, it goes back to this idea of time and mm-hmm. beginning to actually walk the walk and talk the talk at the same time. And that's not, obviously, that's not to say it's not going to be met without resistance and it's not going to be met. Uh, it, there'll be times where people disagree and there's going to be times where people are really vocal about that. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's really finding ways to kind of overcome that and to continue to you know honor those perspectives and to include those stakeholders in decisions and and you know informing policy but also just keeping into account and prioritizing what's right by kids what's right by by 
by overcoming these barriers, as I had mentioned earlier. Um, and that's hard work, especially when people, you know, have are, are wielding the power to funding for different, you know, educational endeavors. So people are, you know, the ones that are making the policies or the ones that are really at the helm of what gets said or done, you know. Um, are we talking about Diane Ravitch's book right now? <laughs> we, we might be. <laughs> I, I, honest to God, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on almost every single episode of this podcast because it's it was so, so true, though. She powerful. hits the nail right on the head. It's so she true. The nail on, and I had no idea, Neil, the level to which this shadow government, this kind of underlying powerhouse of economic influence mm-hmm. was reshaping and redefining education over and over again with zero data to show their effectiveness in doing so. Right. And um, and her book was so powerful for me. But you're right. She talks frequently about how there are these small interest groups that are funded with tremendous economic um, support that are able to reshape something based on their minority uh, opinion of how one aspect that could be related to DEI should look. And they can subsequently put into place people who will vote for their ability to create schools and fund schools that push that one agenda. And that's like, that's a huge barrier <laughs> to the idea of DEI. That's a massive barrier. That's so secular. That's yeah. like, you're going to learn education in this tiny vacuum over here. And you guys are going to learn education in this other vacuum over here. And you folks, welcome to this slightly larger, but less well-funded vacuum over here. And that's that's really dangerous to me. I don't love that. Yeah, it is dangerous, and it, it's true that it's it's and it's it's such an unfortunate reality that we're contending with. But I think the fact that we know that that is what's going on, and we understand that this is kind of the dynamic that is happening at you know a much more you know from positions where people have more authority and more power, it gives us that much more to think about and to an empowerment to at least try to make change or to affect changes, even at a smaller level. Like I, you know, you know, some of these problems can get, they're really, really large and they take a lot of time and they take a lot of resources to get people to kind of relinquish certain or change the way that they think, or, um, you know, kind of be willing to consider different ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you know, I kind of think back to Melinda's change theory where, you know, change is a process that takes a lot of time and change is something that doesn't come overnight. And you're going to have some people that are, you know, they're early pioneers. They're willing to try out things right away and they're willing to to jump right into it. You're going to have people kind of in the middle of the road that are going to want to kind of, you know, maybe toe dip a little bit, but ultimately kind of kick back, see how it goes. And then if it goes well for those early pioneers, they'll they'll, you know, jump on the bandwagon and they'd be willing to try those things. And then you're going to have some other people that, um, you know, unfortunately will just be resistant of, of your best efforts or the best efforts of those before them or, or, you know, different stages of that change, that change process where they are just recalcitrant. They don't want to change the way that they do things. So I think, right. you know, you know, I, I think about all of this and I think about this change theory and how, you know, 
DEI practices, you know, are things that a lot of people in these positions of, you know, of power or that have the the funding that they're they're exercising to influence the way that schools operate, you know, they're they unfortunately they remind me of these people that are, you know, very hesitant to enact any kind of change that they don't see as being beneficial to to kids or to a specific population of students that they're interested in. Um, Which then like Zhao was talking about, they become a, well, he calls them uh, a border, but a barrier. He calls them what? He calls them a border, right? Like the, the borders um, or learning without borders. Yeah. Um, but it's a barrier, really. They become a barrier to accessing knowledge aspects of education and experience and ways of understanding they become an ideal ideological barrier right, right. in that, that role becomes an adaptive issue that that is a very big adaptive issue right that's that's right. changing somebody's mindset right that's not a structural issue that can be corrected by changing the schedule or you know just something surface level that's something that really takes that takes time and those are certain certainly people that hold stakes in education um, but as we've kind of come to learn through this this program and through this process, when it comes to adaptive issues, we, um, you know, it's not, this is a solution that, or this is a, this is a, a challenge that takes, it takes time for sure. And it takes kind of influencing, um, or, or it takes some influencing of these individuals over time to kind of understand or to at least see that what's trying to be done or what is you know, what is the ultimate goal of all of this is a goal that is what is right by by all students, by all people, by all walks of life, by uh, by the greatest number of, of people possible. Um, I and, just worry. But, this is where I struggle with this. And, well, you know, I struggle with anything that takes a tremendous amount of time because... <laughs> that's not my that's not my strong suit when i see something that's detrimental or harmful or oppressive or disenfranchising for my student i don't want to waste time i want change to happen immediately and i will tell you i know i know logically it takes time i this is a an anecdote a side story but i have a member of my uh family who I love and adore, who I think is um, an incredibly kind and thoughtful and open-hearted individual. And one time I was young, I, was, I think I was still in high school, and I know you're considerably younger than me, so you probably weren't even born yet, but <laughs> I was still in high school. And um, it was when many states were beginning the discussion of whether or not to legalize gay marriage. Right. And he said to me, um, well, I don't support it because they want special rights. And that became part of a rhetoric that was floating around. And he is a cis white heterosexual male with very few marginalized or vulnerable identity markers. Right. Right. And I said, no, they don't. And he said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sick of people saying it's special rights. It's not a special right. You get to marry a person that you've fallen in love with. Yep. And people that are gay currently can't marry and have the protection of marriage with a person that they've fallen in love with. So it's not the same. 
you're saying they want special rights, but it's the same rights and they don't have them and they deserve them. And his whole world changed after that comment, but it took a little time. It changed so much that recently he officiated a wedding for uh, a a homosexual couple. So a a gay marriage. And although I hate using the term gay marriage, but you know what I mean? A marriage between two people of the same gender. There we go. And (laughs) he he, uh, officiated, he actually officiated a wedding. That's wonderful. And so that's, that's a huge shift over time. Right. But it did take time. I mean, you're not wrong. It took, took a while to get there. I know that that him challenging that rhetoric in his mind began with that impetus where I called him on that statement that I knew had been floating around in his community and in his culture that I just didn't right. align with. And, and it know, started there. Sometimes it's just a matter of planting that seed to, to, to kind of promulgate that change or, or to even just get someone to think about it and to reconsider their thinking or to change, to, to, to really just change how they think, right? I'll, I'll give an, an anecdote too. I, um, you know, when I first started teaching as, you know, a gay male years ago, I was 22, I got my first teaching position uh, mm-hmm. in middle school. Um, I went in and I was, I was very afraid of sharing my identity with my students. In fact, I worried that if I had confided in my identity with them uh, years ago, that it could have cost me my job. And it was actually at a point where I decided to kind of keep that um, keep that away from my coworkers as well, right? I would never really allude to, like in the teacher room, I would never allude to relationships or who, you know, who, you know, anything like that, that kind of comes up in casual conversation. And I understand, um, I, I know teachers who still to this day will not reveal, even in, you know, a, situations where it would be totally appropriate to make a statement that would subsequently reveal their relationship status with another person and identify them as not being strictly heterosexual, they still, they will not do it. Yeah. And I think for some people, it's, that's a true challenge and it can come from their background. It can come from their experiences. It can come from uh, one of several different things. And I, with people like that, in my experience, I don't, I don't try to, I don't push. I've learned not to push too hard, but I do want to plant a seed. I think planting that seed is probably the biggest first step to take and then just letting it kind of sit for a bit. Um, you know, I, for, and boy, for me, like I was in a very similar boat where I just, that was just the way it was. I just wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to share any bit of that. Um, and it took time, but, uh, about two, yeah, two years ago, I was finishing, no, two or three years ago, I was finishing my, um, my master's capstone project, this action research project I had to do. Um, and it was a project where, um, kids were given these uh, these genius hour projects where they got to choose a topic they were interested in, really become experts about the topic and create some sort of tangible uh, product to really um, showcase their learning. And it was it was wonderful. And and I went through multiple iterations of it. I looked at engagement, I looked at empowerment and autonomy. I looked at, um, you know, it was a lot of a lot of qualitative data that uh, really showed the benefit of giving kids this 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 um, opportunity. And it was in this, it was in the final stage of that project that um, my a colleague at the time, 
she did uh, ELA and social studies. I did math and science. And she wanted to extend it into a, um, uh, a social justice related topic where the kids could pick a social justice, social justice topic that resonated with them, become more knowledgeable about it and take the time to really share the perspectives. And it was boy, it, this was the seed that really changed my perspective on all this. Most of my kids, or quite a few of my kids, went to LGBTQ issues. They went right to the topics of, of gay marriage. And they were all so, they, they all really became, like, it was just, it was just so impressive to see everything from Black Lives Matter to gay marriage to, uh, I mean, just about everything that you could think of. And Right. Uh, it was magic to see them really understand what these, and mind you, these were fifth graders. These were students that, right. young students that were really it's taking on some big issues. Mm -hmm. um, it was the end of that year. I just felt so, I was so moved by that whole experience. And I was moved by those, those kids. It planted a seed for me to share my identity with them. And I remember the last day of school, um, and, and mind you, I was moving to a different state, so they all knew that I was not returning that year, that I shared with them uh, my identity and background, and that I'm a gay male, that I went through a lot of the struggles that these people, um, that you took the time to really get to know, and their, their, their struggles, you know, it's something that really resonated with me, and I wanted to share that with you, and how very fortunate and blessed I feel to be with all of you, and to know that you're going to be the change makers for the future, and it was Oh, Miranda, it was just the most impactful. It was a pivotal moment in my career. And sure, it was beautiful. It's and now it's at a point now where I will start the school year with a slideshow for my seventh and eighth grade students, and I will share that element of my identity with them. I started doing that um, not this past school year, the school year before, uh, my preferred pronouns, uh, and even just this past year, I did it again. Um, and I even shared my coming out story with my students. Um, and then it was, it was, it was shortly after sharing that coming out story with my students that I had two or three come forward and share their struggles with their identity. So uh, it might have been my little mark in the four wall mm -hmm. of my classroom, um, but to have helped remove a barrier and a social identity barrier that would have otherwise, otherwise, you know, continued to be a barrier or to continue to have you know, um, held them back in some, some capacity, it was, it was entirely and completely worth it. And I think it's those small little changes, those small little seeds that we can plant over time that at least I hope, and I aspire to create, uh, or to, to add up to a big difference as time continues to wear on. Um, I mean, I think that what could be more powerful or more empowering than hearing a story like that from a person who you respect, who's brilliant and wonderful and kind and successful and supportive. And to hear a story like that, that even if it's just one kid resonates with and is like, wow, here's a person that owns their truth and, and they're still okay. And I could own my truth and maybe I could still be okay. Um, that, of course, that's, a, that's such a gift. That's such an incredible gift. And I, where I struggle with this idea of things will take time is that I'm nervous. There, at, in my state alone, there are a multitude of legislative drafts in regards to education that are attempting to limit the ability for those moments to happen, right? And they are coming in 
full force. There are more legislative drafts looking to remove students' access to that um, experience, that growth and understanding when it comes to um, difference, cultural differences, identity differences, whatever. There are more legislative drafts looking to remove access to that than there are looking to ensure or strengthen access to that level of dialogue within education. And when I hear it's going to take time, I do feel a sense of panic because it makes me very nervous if we aren't able to act quickly. I really feel sometimes the other side of the equation that would like to reduce DEI. There's actually a draft in my state that literally says they would like to remove DEI, socio-emotional learning, and critical race theory from all curriculum and content. All of it. So that's an actual draft. And, and luckily it was voted not likely to pass and it's been um, it's been archived. It's It's not gone through, but that doesn't mean that there aren't still people with that particular mindset who are pushing hard aggressively to make these changes in education. And I get nervous sometimes when we're like, well, we understand based on structural theory and organizational theory and, um, you know, sociological, ideological changes and how long they take, that this takes time. I, I, I become concerned because the other side, I'm not sure they're always so passive in, um, I'm not sure they always relinquish their understanding to this idea that it takes time. Or right. That, and so I'm, I'm not, I get nervous anyway when people. Yeah. Talk. And I think that that sense of nervousness and that sense of like urgency is, is real. And it's something that we, I, I struggle with it as well. And it, it, it took several years for me anyways, but I, you know, I'm at a point now where we like, yeah, it, I'm 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 willing to act, and and I with the position that I have and the level of power that I have within my four the four walls of my classroom, I'm mm -hmm. I want to make a difference. I want to use that in a way that is going to, um, that is going to promulgate change. That is going to remove barriers. And as and it's much hard. As it is. It you, don't is. Get you, have to, you really have to walk a fine line. You have to be super careful. You have you have to look and figure out. Am I? I'm in a district that would tolerate up to so much of what? You know what I mean? Like, how far can I push the boundary before I would lose my position of influence because they're not going to employ me here anymore? And that's but, a big issue, and that comes down to the people that are are holding positions of authority to release people for sharing that kind of or adopting those kinds of policies and practices, which is why, you know. Um, it, which is why it's so important that we have people assuming those those positions or we really think rethink those positions in ways that you know allow people that are going to to that are going to promote change that benefits everyone to assume those roles because you're right we have we have this we have this pocket of, of individuals that seek to exercise their authority in ways that you know furthers their agenda that furthers um, what they believe to be right by this, but by educating kids and their harmful uh, agenda, their, their yes. disenfranchising agenda, their oppressive agenda. Um, and that's scary. It is scary. But I think what would be scarier is if the people that 
understood what was going on stayed silent. I think there is a call to action that we all bear in kind of in, in rewriting this narrative and acting in ways that are going to counter some of these incredibly harmful things. If you look at some of the things that are happening down south in particular yeah. and the, the the kinds of legislation that's passing down there and it's absolutely appalling and it's it's yes. it's it's appalling in so many ways and it's become the same kinds of conversations that uh i've we've been able to fortunately have with students in our our classroom setting in um in massachusetts you know and we're, we're very lucky to live in a state where we're able to have those conversations and we're able to plant those seeds and to to help this generation coming up see these issues in a much more progressive and informed kind of light. Um, and I, I, I and, and I feel privileged to be able to do that in my district also. Um, I think I, I've worked in a district where I did not feel safe in that way. And that was, that was really scary. And that was the reason that I left ultimately. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel really lucky to be able to do the work that I do in the district that I'm in. I will say sometimes I feel frustrated because I'm not sure that that's really where the work is needed the most. And I feel like if I had, if I was able to do the same kind of thing, but in a district where that representation of understanding of differences and and really i think ultimately what this comes down to my opinion cultural proficiency this representation of cultural proficiency that not only allows for cultural differences but supports cultural differences and values cultural differences um like a nuri robbins model of cultural proficiency which is what i i think dei is is attempting or is a huge part of building. Um, there are communities or districts where that's needed so desperately. And those are generally the ones that we can't access. Right. Right. Or and where people feel the least safe to do the work. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why it's so, I, I, I think it's just so important where we see that and we understand that. And many others do see that and understand that to to act and not stay silent about it and to continue to push in ways that are going to counter that because it is toxic and we're talking about the lives of students here that are being adversely affected in families uh and in communities across the nation and it's incredibly disheartening and it's incredibly frustrating which okay. develops the urgency i think any any of us and i'm sure this has happened for you in fact i'm sure it's happened for many teachers, a lot of teachers, most teachers even, when you sit across from a student who you've grown to adore and value, um, and that student breaks down to you about, you know, a particular identity marker that they're experiencing that they feel they can't be honest about because of fear of retaliation or harassment or discrimination or disappointing their family or whatever. And their mental health is being impacted so significantly it, it's at crisis levels. It no longer feels like an issue where we can be like, well, it's just going to take time for people to come around. Right. In those moments, it feels like, no, no, people need to get on board right now. This kid's actual life is at stake. And 
a big reason why I think it's important to get involved and to not like we it's you know get involved you know get get involved in groups be a part of committees be a part of those hearings those school committee meetings those um those meetings where policies or or procedures are being rewritten or lobbying to people of power in office for change because it's not going to come like it won't come overnight but it's also certainly not going to come if we don't take the time to exercise what we're able to do to to plant those seeds you know we can't it, it is it's so frustrating and i it's it's even more frustrating as a teacher because i oftentimes will just feel like i'm doing the most that i can within this little microcosm of space that i'm given yeah. um, but then i think about if i was just that teacher that said nope not the time not the place i don't want to be talking about that i value my job i'm right. probably getting something that's worse you know right. i'm probably getting something that's potentially going to dis or uh, you know that's not going to help a student out or even just right. plant the seed to give them some hope later on. So it might be pushing the envelope a little bit, but I would much rather push that envelope a little bit than sit back and allow these preposterously egre egregious things to take place. Right. So well, and, this, and, and that's part of like, I think, or what that reminds me of is Ibram Kendi's, the, his definition of being, um, an anti-racist versus being not racist, right? And this idea that if you're just, that if you're just not racist, if you just classify yourself as not racist, then that's a passive action. That's saying I'm not doing anything that would be identified as racist. But that is in fact a level of racism because in order to be truly um, in resistance to racism, you have to be anti-racist. It's an active action. It's not enough to just personally hold that value or ideology and then, you know, impact yourself with that or your choices with that. You have to also actively do things like speak out against racism, vote with a vote that is anti-racist or supports candidates with anti-racist policies and, and ideas, um, that it takes more than just the passive notion of being not racist. And I think that can be applied to any of these areas, right? It's not yeah. enough to say I'm not homophobic or I'm not anti-LGBTQ. You, you have to be, I guess in that sense, we call it pro-LGBTQ, right? Like you'd have to okay. be taking an active uh, role in promoting the inclusion and equity and diversity uh, of your district in relationship to all of these areas of uh, marginalized or vulnerable status. Yeah. And you see that word vulnerable. And I think that's a big part of it too, because we're there's vulnerability is so key in all of this. Like, right. you know, I, 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 I hold DEI near and dear to my heart for my own experiences and for my own um, being a student you know, through, through, um, NEC, but also just, you know, as a classroom teacher. And there's plenty of times where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm doing what's right by kids or, or adopting policies or acting in ways that are removing these barriers or that are, you know, promoting diversity, you know, equity and inclusion. But mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I think there's, uh, there's obviously times where I don't realize I'm being biased or I don't realize that what I'm doing is actually disenfranchising or is shortchanging 
you know, another population of students. I may be well-intentioned and I may, you know, think that I'm doing right by it, but um, I think it's, you know, it's a matter of being vulnerable. Like if someone were to bring that to my attention and take the time to explain to me and educate me about, you know, why that wasn't, you know, anti-racist or why that wasn't or whatever, you know, I, I think there's a level of vulnerability that people need to be okay with and be willing oh, yeah. to receive or exercise. And I think that's something that's really, really hard for many people to be able to do. It's hard. It's, 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 I don't want to say it's attacking somebody necessarily, but it's also bringing to light things that, that need to be brought to light if we're going to effectively change the way that we are, the way that we're interacting with each other and our students. Um, and, the the documents that I looked at that I sent to you that were current, like recent publications about how to implement um, DEI practices and protocols, um, policies, ideas, initiatives in education uh, effectively, all of them discuss this idea of honesty, integrity, vulnerability, um, being able to listen openly and honestly, and also being able to speak openly and honestly, to be vulnerable, to hold integrity for other people in your, um, you know, in your school that are also learning and doing this work with you. Those people have to be able to trust that what's said or done within a meeting is held in confidence of that meeting while people are doing the work of trying to grow in these areas. And, um, I know that that's a huge hot topic. I, I think every single time I've been in a room with people that are talking about DEI related topics, and inevitably one person says, I'm going to ask this question and I apologize in advance if I'm not using the right language or if I'm saying this in a way that could be offensive. I truly don't mean to be offensive. I'm open and open to hearing feedback about how I should be wording this or saying this to come across clearly and with the intention of what I'm trying to do, which is I'm seeking to learn. So, and then they say their comment and then they're, cause they're worried. They know that yeah. to some extent there will be a stigma and they're worried about that too, but they're trying to be vulnerable. And if there's one person doing that in every meeting, you know, there's probably half the people who are thinking that oh, at least. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that someone is taking the time to, to make that remark Tend, it tells me that they're they're coming from a good place and they may not have access to the language or to the understanding but they're they're coming from a good place and i think it would be wise of the people on the receiving end to hear that to to see that and to be willing to engage with them in that level of vulnerability and help them understand you know what the right terminology would be or how we would address that or how we could use more inclusive language or practices to kind of address the things that were being shared. So I think it's reciprocal. I think, you know, as we're going through this process, it's going to take vulnerability on both sides and a, a willingness to, this willingness to grow and to to continue to, to kind of develop along the way because none of us are perfect at this. And I don't think any one of us are going to get it right the first time. And I think there's a lot of growth and a lot of flirting with this vulnerability that needs to happen on both ends. Um, I'd love to, um, oh, I'm so sorry. No, no, go ahead. You're fine. I'd love to share with you something I, I learned once that I thought was the most, one of the most brilliant ways to deal with conversations about topics where a person is seeking to learn, but they may not know enough yet to not 
say things inappropriately. And um, it's through the Human Library Organization, um, which was developed in, in Copenhagen, Denmark. Are you familiar with that? I have heard of human libraries before, yes. Yeah. It's I love this project. And in my former district, I implemented a human library. It was a digital one um, where people would sign up for times to log on and be available to have conversations with students based on their perspective, like from their sociological, sociological minority marker, right? Right. So um, I had people that had um, done time in prison. I had people that were refugees. I had people um, that were part of the LGBTQIA uh, plus community. I had people uh, from different races, nationalities. I had people just, I had single mothers. I had people who grew up in generational poverty, like all the different vulnerable or marginalized groups I could get my hands on that would be even remotely willing to participate. I tried to put in there. And then the students were able to access time and essentially check out one of the human books to have a conversation with them about their experience um, within that group. And in order to do that, I knew that a lot of my students came from um, cultures that used inappropriate or offensive or hurtful language when talking about certain sociological minorities. So I said, um, I used the kind of terms that the human library organization used, which I thought were brilliant. And one of them was if um, someone said a question or asked a question of one of the books, and it was said in such a way that was hurtful or was offensive or wasn't clear, then the human book was able to say, so that, and it had to start with, ouch, that stung that question hurt my feelings. Is there a way you could find to reword that so that I could give you the best answer? Oh, I love and that. It would just keep going until the person and the next, the person's next question might be, can you tell me how you would word it? Or can you help me understand why it was? Or maybe they would just think, you know, oh, I actually know another way to say this that might be less offensive. And then they would come up with a less offensive way. But it was always that ouch, that question stung. Is there a way you could reword that so that I could give you a clear answer because that hurt my feelings or something like that? And then, um, and it gave that person an opportunity to do that without feeling like I just messed up. I'm just going to stop do talking about this. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And it became and then, a learning moment for that person. That's wonderful. And if it was a boundary cross, if it was like, the person was asking a question. It wasn't about how they were wording it, but more it was just uh, crossing an inappropriate boundary. Then the book was able to say, I can't answer that question because I haven't written that chapter yet, which basically meant like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you that I'm not comfortable with talking about that. I'm not going to share that. Um, but without saying like, I'm not comfortable talking about that. I'm not going to tell you that, which feels like something that someone would have to be, you know, defensive to. So, um, so there was like, a clear set of dialogue or language that people could use within these conversations to reduce that um, sort of potentially contentious or um, controversial uh, dynamic. And I thought that was really brilliant. And I know that that's a really important part because all of these uh, different references that I used to look at how people are approaching DEI 
within education currently or recently, they all talked about how vulnerable it can be and how hard it is to be a person that says, hey, I'm learning about this. I don't know that much about this yet. I see a space where maybe I could grow and learn more and seek to understand. But at this time, I'm not there yet. So I'm going to need some help sort of walking through this. And I feel like if people if more people had access to that kind of dialogue, that kind of um, dynamic in, in talking about these things, we could do more of this work more quickly. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a matter like, I, I, I love that. Cause I remember in a couple different schools and even in a school that I, uh, the high school I went to growing up, we had a program through uh, the anti-defamation league um, called the world of difference. It was the world of difference Institute that trained students who are sophomores and juniors to ultimately become diversity leaders within their own school where they those same students that were trained would go back to their schools and they would they would have these lessons or they would have these um yeah they would have lessons with typically freshman level students i'm pulling from my own experience um and actually i was able to do something like this this past year too but um and i remember one of the lessons that we would do with these freshman level students mind you, I was a junior or senior when this was happening, um, mm-hmm. was really just, we, yeah, I think we called it oops and ouch. We had these these ground rules where, um, and expectations where, you know, the, uh, the idea, what was communicated was that we're going to be engaging in topics that, um, you know, are a little more, they're a little more heavy at times, and we may not always have access to the language or the, you know, the background to really understand uh, what we're saying could be considered offensive or that right. it could potentially, you know, be deemed harmful to somebody else and that we would use these terms as a platform to grow. Um, and it was really a matter of making sure that kids were, you know, just held accountable to using these terms appropriately for one, setting the expectations firm. Um, but it became a very impactful way to to help start planting those seeds for kids to understand um and to really kind of internalize that language and to begin to move towards a greater DEI kind of lens. Um, Absolutely. So I, I love that. And uh, I was able to see something like that this past year too. So it is out there. And I think it's something that we're considering as a district doing next year. Like this was when I was in high school and it happened to be that um, I was, I was asked to attend this conference sponsored by the ADL to do this. So uh, I, I agree. And I think for adults, I think that, that it can definitely become more of a challenge. And I think mm-hmm. the challenge really just comes down to people's willingness to engage with it and their willingness to uh, to be vulnerable and to admit that they um, that they perhaps didn't see something the way or they didn't, you know, to they, a willingness to be able to admit that they were wrong or that they misinterpreted or didn't have an understanding of what that term really meant or how it could be seen as offensive and then being willing to learn from that experience and having that same kind of underlying expectation for for all people you know and i I think that's that can be challenging and i do think that there's people that are very you know resistant to that but i think there's also a lot of people that if given the opportunity and the platform to do that would be willing and able to learn from that experience um, so that's really wonderful that you were able to have that experience with your own kids. And I would love for there to be more opportunities like that for not only for students, but for adults, because we're all human, we all make mistakes. And the only way that we grow as human beings and learn is through those mistakes and being I mean, how, 
how great would it be to have like a, a class where literally it's just a human library and you can access people and work through some of these challenges and understanding different sociological minorities that lead to these biases and stereotypes yes. and prejudices. Um, and stories above all too are so impactful. Like it's one thing to right. hear about it in a slideshow or a presentation or in a book, but it's another to actually story. engage a person to hear it in a story. Right. Yeah. It's when there's a face to put to the story. It's when there's an actual human being in front of you who you realize you otherwise would have um, just treated like any other human being. And now you're realizing that maybe upon, you know, hearing this about them, you would have treated them differently. And, and that engaging in that kind of cognitive dissonance is so powerful in changing uh, the way that students think about their own um, values and ideologies and whether or not they truly are theirs or have they adopted them from somewhere else and they're not really re representative of how they feel. So um, I, I think it's, it's hugely beneficial um, and powerful. I, I wish there were more opportunities from them, but I really like how they talk about being able, like they address immediately being able to discuss issues with people who aren't yet ready to talk about those things uh, in the most appropriate way because they, they just don't have the, the foundational understanding or knowledge of the right. topic. So, and that's okay because if you're seeking to learn, you're seeking to understand, it's okay if you don't already know yet. The problem is when we're like, I don't know yet. And also I don't want to. Right. But another when someone's willing to say, I don't know that much about this, but I'd be willing to learn. Like that's where they, that's where we have to capture. And kids are so willing to learn which is something we don't give them credit for enough. They really are in ways that like adults sometimes could, could uh, benefit from <laughs> attempting to exemplify. Yeah, for sure. They're so willing to be adaptable and to learn and to be flexible. If you give them the opportunity. That's where um, it is. It's the opportunity. And, and they're, they're willing to change and develop. They just need, they need the support. So I think something like that would be super helpful. But I, I do really think overall, from my understanding of this challenge, I'll tell you a little bit about what I found. First, it requires, as, uh, as a challenge in education, implementing DEI initiatives, PD policies, whatever, requires that people are able to get comfortable, that they know why they're doing it that you can remove this illusion of, well, we just have this problem and we need to stop the problem by also talking about how to stop the problem with real ideas, not just, you know, theoretical um, constructs or really abstract broad strokes of, of change with like real practices and protocols and resources and tools um, reevaluating people's approach within the classroom, which is always a hot topic. <laughs> um, it is, it is, but we got to start somewhere. We definitely, we, we do, we need, and educators, as educators, we want something that we can learn today and then right. we can start to apply tomorrow. And it's a matter of, it's not those, it's not, it's not a matter of broad strokes anymore because it's out there and we've, we've done the broad strokes. Many, many, many people have done the broad strokes. They check the box, they've moved on. 
No, now it's a matter of actually doing the work and anticipating, well, anticipating the challenges ahead. And then, you know, with that knowledge, thinking of and being intentional with ways we're going to address those challenges. And I really want to be very direct about a couple of things when I say that I think more districts need to implement uh, PDs and initiatives, protocols and policies, ideas that are representative of having DEI in mind. Because I think a lot of people put DEI in their mission vision. And I think if you have a school of 100 educators who know that DEI is in their mission vision statement, you are probably looking at 100 different definitions of what that means. And so I think it's important that when this work is done, everyone participates. And I read that in one of um, one of the articles that I was using to research, that participation can look like a lot of different things. And whether that's people talking and asking questions, or that's people just sitting and listening, genuine participation is super critical. And I want to make sure that's very clear. No disingenuous, I'm at this meeting, but I'm actually doing grading or I'm responding to emails or I'm texting with a friend, like real genuine participation. And also the most important to me, the thing that I would like to make clear is that from everything that I looked at for resources on this topic, it is critical that we make sure people understand that sociological minorities do not have to do the work tax of representing their minority group when doing this kind of work. They don't have to be the voice of that minority group. They don't have to share their experience. They don't have to be treated like subject matter experts on what it means. They don't have to be treated like their experience is representative of the whole. And it's so important that we remember that because it's so frequent that I've seen people implement DEI in schools and then look to the marginalized to be the voice or the representatives of that initiative. And it is not their work to do. No, no, no. And it's not a responsibility that they bear. Everybody bears the same, the same shared responsibility for DEI. I love that you said having that, that equal representation of people and everybody being fully participative in in efforts like this, whether that's actively listening and internalizing things, or that's actually being vocal and and engaging in a different way. But everybody shares a stake in in doing this kind of work and everybody really needs to be immersed. Um, And yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Like, you know, not every person that's African-American has gone through the same experiences that the other, you know, African-American individual has undergone, you know, um, you know, that's not to say that other people haven't experienced that, but um, it would not be it would not be productive to assume or to be looking to those people for, you know, for for insights or for unless they, of course, have things to share, in which case, obviously, in which case they should be allowed to, as should everybody. Right. Right. Um, but it shouldn't be the responsibility of um, sociological minorities to do the work of setting up and creating and implementing and speaking for or advocating for DEI work. Right. That's not fair. And, you know, if people are willing to share, that's beautiful and that's super helpful. And I love when people get to a level of comfortability within themselves that they want to share their experience to educate others, but it's not mandatory. 
and it's not um, it's not a work tax that they have they have to bear any more than any other individual. And by that I mean everyone should be involved, everyone should be participating genuinely, but not any more than any one other person based exactly. on the fact that they may or may not have more marginalized or vulnerable identity markers than, you know, this person over here. And so I think that that's really, I think that's really important. I mean, I love to give PDs and talk to people about ADHD as a person that has struggled with ADHD for a long time and has, uh, and has a really interesting history with figuring out exactly what was going on in this brain. Um, I, I love to talk to people about it, especially being an adult with ADHD who also has kids with ADHD, who also works with kids with ADHD. Um, I love to talk about it and all the different types of treatment. But if my school came to me and said, you have to give a presentation on, um, on let's say, um, being a woman or um, you need to give a presentation on being pansexual. I, I would be really frustrated by that. Right. That would be like my administrator approaching me to have a conversation about being gay in front of everybody. And yeah, no, I would have to say no to that because I actually don't have to do that. And it's, that's not my job. However, if you hold a, you know, everyone does their own PD and we do like a, a walk around PD where which are my favorite PDs, by the way, yes. um, where everybody's like bringing their own thing to the table and you can sign up for the different seminars. I would, I would be like, could I do my ADHD PD? Because <laughs> I love to talk. I love to talk to people about that and just give them ideas on what is most um, helpful or successful. What are, you know, some of the things they should pay, pay attention for with students who are starting new types of neurochemical modulators and that kind of thing. So I love talking about that. And that's okay. And I should be given space to do that. You know what I mean? Right. Given the space is key. Right. So um, as we've talked about this a lot already on this episode, I know that you brought this topic up because you see this largely as an, an adaptive challenge. And so do I. Um, I like to use Bowman and Deal's framework of understanding uh, organizational structure to look at adaptive challenges. I think it's comprehensive enough. I think that it gives people um, a lot of space to understand the implications of challenges within organizations. Um, Bowman and Deal have four frames in, for which they identify being frames or lenses that you can view organizational challenges through. And uh, in particular, uh, they have the first frame, which is a structural frame. And the symbol for that is the factory. The structural frame has to do with everything that organization creates, how they create it, the policies, the protocols, the tools, the resources, what they're making, what they're, what service they're providing. Um, they have a second frame, the human resources frame, and the symbol for that is the is the family. It's this idea that there are interpersonal relationships and human. Um, conversations and, and relationships within every organization that have a, a powerful role in the success of that organization. Next, they have uh, the third frame, the political frame. The symbol for that is the jungle. And it's this idea that there's a hierarchy to power and influence within every organization. Right. And uh, lastly, 
there's uh, the symbolic frame, which is the symbol for that is the temple. It, it's the answer to the why. Why are we doing this? Why are we here? Why do we exist? It's what is our mission, our vision? What's our why? Right. So um, and then uh, Neil worked with me on um, collaborating. We collaborated together on our article proposing the eudaimonia frame, which is the fifth frame that would be um, it's theoretical, this concept that Bowman and Deal's frames could benefit from a fifth frame that talked about the synergy, uh, the collaboration, the harmony of all of those different dynamics of an organization working together to make each component successful and effective. And um, how that requires a level of um, tuning to one another. So our our symbol is the tuning fork, uh, tuning to the same key, if you will, like when you're trying to build an orchestra or a band and you want everyone to be in line with one another so that all of the work is going towards the same conceptualization of how this should be done, why it's being done, where it's being done, who's doing it, what impact is it going to have, that kind of thing. So um, often we know that when that looks great, it looks like people talking about it was a really fun place to work or I loved being a part of that organization because everyone was so supportive. Things worked so efficiently and I felt like I, you know, I belonged there, like I was welcomed and it was really positive experience for me. We know when it's not working (laughs) because people will say something was just off. I just didn't enjoy being there. Everything felt very negative. Everything felt like it was, you know, working by itself individually. Nothing felt like it was coming together. Everyone was off doing their own thing. So we know what it looks like when it's not working and when it is, although it is a relatively abstract idea for a a frame. So when I think of DEI and education, I think of the different lenses that this or frames that this could fall under, but I'd like you, um, Neil, to talk a little bit about how you see this um, working within Bowman and Deal's theoretical framework for understanding um, organizational structure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me when we talk about DEI, when we talk about education and we talk about adaptive issues within education, I, you know, I, I see all of these frames really bearing a lot of weight. But the first thing that jumps out to me right now is the political frame. And, and this idea of it being a jungle and this hierarchy of a hierarchy of power. And I also think about uh, the resources that schools are afforded, you know, particularly funding and how there's this, there's, um, there's this, this, um, the way that funding is distributed to schools plays such a big part in what is taking place or the kinds of ideology that is being instilled into a district or even at the state level or federal level. Um, you know, even within an individual school setting, you're going to have a wide variety of individuals that want to compete for these resources, that compete for the funding, that uh, really want to have a say or to exercise some authority in the kinds of things that are happening or are not happening or being included in the curriculum or not being included in the curriculum. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important from a leadership perspective to be cognizant of those multiple stakeholders, those multiple interest groups that exist in any organizational setting. Um, and then, you know, being sure that those those interest groups or those particular individuals all share some sort of stake or some sort of, um, they're able to exercise some level of 
voicing their perspective when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to, you know, crafting a mission or a vision statement, or when it comes to uh, being a part of these DEI efforts, right? Because it's not going to be just a one person kind of deal doing the work. It needs to be everybody that's engaged, that's working together towards this common good, towards this, towards better practices. Um, so I definitely think about the political frame. I definitely see the structural pieces coming into play, a structural frame really coming into play. I think as we start to really or continue to move towards more DEI-based policies and practices at a systemic level, whether it's in a school or a school district, or even at a state or federal level, we're really gonna have to rethink some of the structures that are in place. We're gonna have to really think about the resources, the services, the policies that govern you know, how schools function or how schools operate to be inclusive, to be uh, to be ones that are addressing these barriers that we, we know and we can support with research exist. Um, it's just going to be a matter of identifying them and then and then really taking the time to be intentional about how we're going to change or rethink the structure. I definitely think about human resources, those interpersonal relationships. I think about the professional development that uh, we're all responsible for engaging with, that we're all responsible for learning from, from growing towards and really being able to use the positions that we're in um, as a way to continue to to kind of to continue to grow and to continue to um, to continue to do what we do best, but in a way that is going to reflect DEI practices or that's going to at least grow in that direction, right? Human resources is all about that, that idea of family and those interpersonal relationships, that vulnerability, you know, and affording ourselves right. and one another, that level of vulnerability is going to be a, a key piece. Um, the symbolic frame, yeah, for sure. Like if we're thinking about what is the ultimate goal of a school or a district or, you know, even a department of education, we're, we're really thinking about, we're really thinking broadly. We're really thinking at a much broader level in terms of what we hope the outcome of students, this, this upcoming generation to be. And that's going to certainly include a wide variety of individuals. It's going to really include a wide variety of values and stakeholders and really taking the time to be intentional with what is what are the common themes what are the common themes from this group and this group and this group and this group that we want for kids and how do we how do we somehow weave that together to create some sort of vision that you know incorporates or at least attempts to incorporate as many of those those purposes or that why as we can no small feat for sure but um and then eudaimonia boy how what better what better like a tuning fork or uh, a barometer for understanding or you know getting a sense of whether or not this is jiving together this is meshing together right are we being intentional about the people that we want or that that should be supporting or that everyone should be supporting this are we um you know, are we seeing the structures that we have in place, you know, mm -hmm. working in conjunction with the people that we have in place and the different viewpoints that we have from a political friends or political frame? You know, I think it's going to be probably the best barometer that we have and the best sense that what we've created is is working or that it's it's functioning in a way that is making progress, right? And it's functioning in a way that is creating this synergy over time. And I think the best way that we can kind of see that is with our own students and seeing how students respond to these kinds of changes that we would make, whether it's policy or procedure. I think they're going to be the best ones to be able to tell us 
you know, kids, as we know, are the best, <laughs> they're the best yeah. when it comes to that stuff. We don't give them enough credit. And education for 21st century learners than we probably will ever know. Yes. Absolutely. It's so different. Well, I know you're younger than me, but it's so, I, I'm sure you even you can, um, can understand when I say that it's so different in comparison to what I experienced for education. Oh, for sure. For sure. Just because I'm a different person or I grew up in a different area or whatever. It's different in the sense that what they're combating every day at school for challenges foundationally are different than what I was worried about or what I had going on. Um, and, and that plays a huge role. I think from what you're saying, it sounds like you're, feeling is that this particular adaptive challenge falls under every frame. There's a, there's a place to understand this challenge within um, the definition of every framework that. Yeah. I think it's important to consider all of those frames. You know, I think if, I think if we're just solely focusing on, I mean, the the political one jumped out right at me, jumps out to me right away. But I think anybody that is in a position to influence or that's in a position to affect change, which we all are, I think we'd be remiss to not use each and every one of those frames to the most of our advantage, the most that they'll allow us to, and to 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 use that to continue to push forward and to grow. Um, and I I think it's it's I think you know taking into account all of those frames yields as much perspective and as much insight and as much as we can avail ourselves to if we're really going to be intentional about considering and actually doing this kind of work. We have to consider it from all of these angles. If we're solely focusing on one or two, we're blindsided to other angles that might hinder or otherwise redact some of our efforts. I completely completely agree. I think that this particular adaptive challenge falls under every frame. I'll give you a spoiler alert. Um, that's what I've concluded at the end of every episode I've done so far of this podcast is that these adaptive challenges are so complicated that they actually fall within, um, each of the frames in terms of sometimes some of them more or less than others, but still there's an angle by which we have to consider, understand that challenge using every frame for this one. I would say, well, anytime there's a cultural proficiency issue on the table, I feel that falls under eudaimonia because a, a strong part of eudaimonia for me is the culture and climate with which a person is experiencing an organization. Um, and and whether that culture or climate has tuned to the same tuning fork or not. And we know sometimes when it hasn't, because when we go to the DEI um, PDs or developments, there's always the late adopters who will say things like, Ugh, another one of these or, you know, some, something to the effect of I didn't pay attention or I'm so sick of this or I'm just going to go back to my classroom and pretend I went or whatever. And so you know that not everyone is tuned to this idea that this is a topic we need to be working on and needs our focus and attention. Um, and I think that in terms of a structural, um, a structural frame for understanding, that's hugely critical for this particular adaptive challenge. If the policies, the protocols do not support 
if the curriculum and content do not support this vision of a diverse, equitable, and inclusive educational experience, you'll never get there. Exactly. Right? It's never exactly. going to happen. Yeah. And, and you're not ever going to have a strong, safe, trusted relationship with integrity between students and adults in the building or students and other students or adults and other adults if people don't feel represented, included, like they have access to equity and opportunity, right? right. And you're never going to have DEI genuinely implemented within a district if the powers that be, those who are making decisions um, at the highest level for education, do not also see DEI as a critical value um, in reforming education. If they are not willing um, with all of their influence and power to make changes to policies that are done with equity and inclusion and diversity in mind, with cultural proficiency in mind, then you just won't ever get there. Um, and also, if and I know a lot of schools are really good at putting DEI statements or even just the term DEI into their mission and vision. <laughs> and so that's great because yeah. it means they're hoping to do that. <laughs> it's like, but that's I where it really stops. This. <laughs> and it's just heartening. <laughs> and it's, it's frustrating that that's become the, that's become the norm for a lot of schools. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people experience that. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that there's districts I've worked in where we'll do it. We've talked about it. Uh, in, in this one particular school year, and then the next year it just falls off and it becomes mm -hmm. a different flavor that school year. Now it's, now we're talking about, you know, whatever else. Uh, right. No, this is But if, if it's in there, if it's like an active part of the mission and vision where people are, are considering that in, in a valuable way, I think my school does a brilliant thing where they will give you credit for PD even if you do something on your own, you'll get credit hours for PD if it relates to DEI, if you can prove that it is something to promote DEI in education, because that's one of their, their goals, right? So that's policy. There's like three things you can click. Uh, one of them is socio-emotional learning, one of them is DEI. But if you, if you do that, that is a policy that promotes the mission and vision of DEI as a critical component of the educational experience, that makes sense, right? right. Um, and so I think that, you know, there are certain things that can be done that if the mission and vision, if it's not just written in there, but it's also genuinely a part of the mission and vision and is promoted that way, then, um, then there are ways to make sure that that frame is fulfilled. Yeah, and it's gonna take a village and it's gonna take people actually doing the work and learning from mistakes and you know no longer just walk it or talking the talk but walking the walk and giving Absolutely. ourselves the gift of vulnerability and giving each other the gift of vulnerability and getting the right people the people that that you know into those positions that are going to affect that kind of change it's a call to each of us to 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 work together to make that right. to make that happen and it's really you know, it's a matter of just actually taking the steps to do it. Because so often we become jaded when we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it, and then we don't actually make a policy or actually do anything that's going to 
push us further along. So it's really wonderful to hear that your district is doing that. My district, we actually, as a science department, met this past year, um, and we really started to look at the ways that our curriculum, uh, I mean, it's I'm a science teacher, so it was very easy right away to see, oh, wow, what a surprise. We're talking about a bunch of old, dead white guys, right? These are <laughs> old scientists, yeah. And so we're really thinking about ways that we can address some of that going into the school year next year, yeah. right? We can really start to diversify the representation of female scientists and uh, scientists of color and really you know, taking the time to do that. Can I make a recommendation? Yeah, all ears. Found that students love developing curriculum. They know future students are going to partake in because it gives them that sense of agency. Um, in in the learning experience. And they also feel empowered at the notion that they would be building uh, future experiences for students that are coming up behind them. And if you were to ask them to do a research project, but they have to do a person um, in a field of science that is notably forgotten from the canon, And you would have to kind of explain to them what that looks like. So for some reason, despite the fact that this person did all of this work and was incredibly powerful in, you know, building this this field of study, they are not acknowledged as the father of that field of study or whatever. Um, And you allowed them to really dig deep and it can be in any field. So you really open up like when I say you can research anything key players of people who have um, given to and developed this field of research, but less is known about them. I think that you would find they would be really excited about that. The very first episode that I did um, in this podcast, I had a student where um, he came on and he talked a little bit about diversifying content and um, how that was really important to him that more the voices of the unheard, the voices of um, the oppressed or the marginalized be more represented in modern education was really critical to him. And he talked about the danger of the single story when we only hear from like, we only learn about colonialism from the accounts of people uh, who were doing the colonizing. Right. So, um, he talked a lot about that and he was so empowered. And one of the things he talked about was how we don't hear that much about Tesla. We hear um, a lot about Edison. Yeah. Yeah. Tesla's. Yeah. <laughs> I just got, I just panicked for a second that I was saying the wrong thing. So <laughs> no, you got it. Tesla was that one that actually discovered electricity. Right. And so he was talking about it because he was talking about how um, Thomas Edison's idea of, um, creating electricity from a capitalist perspective where he wanted to be rich and famous. He wanted to make the money. He wanted to profit off of this versus Nikola Tesla, whose version of creating uh, or of sharing electricity with the world looked more socialist. It looked more like, I now know how to do this. Let me just give everyone access to this. Right. 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 That did not promote Um, the same values or the same agenda that the country was currently looking to, uh, to foster. And so one got pushed to the front of being the father of electricity and the other one didn't. 
And um, that comes down to just very uh, a marginalization based on on ideology and economic, um, you know, mindsets or beliefs. But he he was really empowered to talk about that. And he, he researched a ton about it. He wanted to understand why Tesla was so um, marginalized. And, and it wasn't until recently that people became invested and interested in his story um, on a grander scale, more mainstream than it was before. So um, I think if you went to your students and you said, who would you want to learn about that we don't talk about? And maybe that's personal to them. Like maybe if it was me, I would research uh, women in the field of science, or, um, you know, maybe someone would look at, um, people with disabilities in the field of science or, uh, refugees in the field of science or whatever to really flush out whose work can we include based on, you know, those students who felt, um, impassioned to research them. Yeah. Talk about an impactful way of giving kids autonomy, but also bringing to light those people that, are, you know, have been historically marginalized or people that, like you said, have just kind of been pushed back while all these other people have been pushed forward, you know? And I think that's something we're really trying to be more mindful of, but it's a step in the right direction, you know? And I think the little steps over time make a big difference. And the more that we can do of that and the more we can critically think about that and start making changes, the better off we're going to be. I think that would be, I think that would be really beautiful. And and think about how much more efficient that would be than you and your <laughs> department being like, well, let's go find them. Let's yeah. go find them. We're going to exactly. Yeah, two birds, one stone. We all talk about doing frequently, but we just don't always all have the time for. Exactly. And and that's and that's not fair. And we shouldn't. It should be more of a, a focus for us. And we should be given more time to do it. However, the reality of teaching is such that the logistics are we're inundated with minutiae so instead we maybe we outsource that (laughs) to the kids (laughs) i like the way you ordered that yes but i mean it's all for the betterment right it would be right by kids it would be a great way to engage them and it would be impactful for everybody to learn that you know and you get a little assessment out of it. Right, exactly. everybody. Neil, I really appreciate you coming on today and talking to me about this topic. DEI is so critical in our schools, and it's also so um, abstract and, and understood in different ways by a lot of different people at the same time. And I'm not sure everyone really understands fully how to approach it or what it means. And, and I think this um, episode has been full of some really great ideas about ways to think about approaching that in education or what to keep in mind when putting in a new initiative or protocol. So I love that. And thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful experience, you know, and I think it's a job that we all, that we all bear. And it's something that, you know, I think we each share responsibility for, and there's certainly a lot to consider uh, but I think we're all, I think it's a call for all of us right now, especially to to be mindful of and to be exercising as we go forward and to no longer just be talking the talk, but walking the walk to what we know is is right by, by kids. I could not agree more. Brilliantly said. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, and I'll see you again soon. This was the Adaptive Edge of Education. All right. Thank you.